This week's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. For a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream this course, The Fundamentals of Photography, a $235 value, and hundreds of other courses for free. This free offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. I think you'll really like it. This week's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Ballotcraft. Ballotcraft is a fantasy politics game. It's like fantasy football, but for politics. Win in Ballotcraft by best predicting who's going to win the Iowa caucuses, the New Hampshire primaries, and other upcoming elections. It's 100% free. Check it out at Ballotcraft.com. Hi, I'm Richard Deitch, host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. Sports Illustrated is the most trusted name in sports journalism, and now with the SI Podcast Network, you can take us with you wherever you go. From sports media to the NFL to fantasy football to the NBA, no one has you covered in the podcasting space like Sports Illustrated. See the entire lineup and learn more at si.com slash podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language. Wait, can you talk for a minute, Matt? Yes. Yes, I can. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined as usual by my colleagues Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Hello, Matt. Hello. Hi. It's cold outside, but that just means the podcasting energy is is higher than ever. We're going to heat up the digital airwaves. We've got a bunch of awesome topics this week. We're going to change up the the research paper of the week and and discuss a a bad paper for a little change. This is one about how much wealth the world's billionaires have versus like the bottom 50%. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's it'll. It's it'll, a very viral statistic. Yes, there's a mind blowing stat that is also wildly misleading. You won't believe it because it's not true. <laughs> it's kind of well, true. It's true. But but don't Anyways, skip ahead. Yes. Don't skip ahead. First, we've got to talk about the political revolution that may be sweeping <laughs> America and may or may not repeal all the laws of politics as we know it. So we try here on The Weeds not to begin with topics that are kind of news-oriented, right? Because we want you to be able to listen to this years from now with the, with your grandchildren. But Bernie Sanders said something at the Fourth Democratic Debate that gets to a really deep, interesting question about what is breaking American politics right now. And he said that... It is a mythology created by the media that what is gridlocking Congress and what has made it so the American people are not getting the policies they want is not political hatred and it's not division and polarization. The problem is really not disagreement and the problem is not a party. The problem is that there are these special interests that are coming into Washington, paying off members of Congress and blocking the American people from having their voice heard. And if you kind of back out of the Democratic debate, You find that this is a really interesting debate that is going on in political science, in American politics more generally, among office holders. It's a debate that we've seen in the Obama administration about whether the real problem in American politics, and obviously there can be many problems, is that money is keeping things from happening or there's a counter argument that money is actually a force right now that is in many ways trying to pull American politics back to the center. And it's failing because the forces of ideology and partisan polarization are, are, are just too powerful. 
And I think that the truth about this is that it varies a little bit from issue to issue. Sanders's sort of comprehensive view of this is mistaken, but that there probably are some topics on which he's right about this and that the, the forces of, of money in politics do kind of tend to drive the parties apart. I mean, I think if you look at polling on the question of taxing the rich more, you'll see that that's overwhelmingly popular with Democrats. It's overwhelmingly popular with independents. And it's also kind of popular among self-identified Republicans. I mean, most Republicans are against it, but like a big minority of Republicans are for it. In a world where money didn't matter, you would think that some Republican Party politicians looking to become more popular, win elections, might give ground on this. So that would be one of the topics on which they're willing to compromise, even while they hold the line very rigidly on, on some other things. And the reason that they don't is that this aspect of conservative ideology, which is very very much in the interests of rich people is very, very important to Republican Party fundraising. And I think that tends to polarize them on that. Conversely, you see that the Democrats will tend to adhere to quite liberal views on abortion rights, even when they need to run in pretty conservative constituencies. And I do think that that, again, is about the fact that abortion rights is an important part of Democrats' fundraising pitches. And so it does tend to polarize on those subjects. But then you do see contrary cases, like on the question of infrastructure, where you've had for years now labor unions, but also a lot of big businesses and contractors and people saying, you know, the government should be spending some more money on infrastructure. And there's a question of how to pay for it, but it's it's compromisable. But for years, this like wasn't getting done. It oh, I know the AFL-CIO and the Chamber of Commerce both backed an infrastructure bill during the Obama era, and it just didn't go anywhere. Well, and eventually... That's a, like the biggest right-wing and left-wing interest groups. Eventually, a, a modest version of this did get done in 2015 as as a a highway bill reauthorization. But it took years to get done this, A, fairly routine reauthorization, B, something that was supported by the donor class on on both sides, and C, what they had originally been mobilizing around was the idea of like a special infrastructure push. And that just didn't happen. The recession window completely closed on that without it ever getting done. I mean, there's a, a number of reasons, but the fundamental reason is that grassroots conservatives did not care that the Chamber of Commerce thought this was a good idea. It was not in keeping with conservative ideology, and it was not in keeping with the partisan tactics of the Republican Party to do an infrastructure bill with the Obama administration. Sarah, if you look at Obamacare, the path Obamacare took from the from the perspective of where the money was, what would you have expected to happen on that, right? If you, if you kind of took this one-dimensional view of American politics and you said, okay, what is really driving outcomes here is money. What would the Obamacare debate have looked like, or is that the debate we actually got? I think money and big health care interests were often seen as the reason we couldn't reform health care, that you'd kind of expect the AMA, the group that represents doctors, and the AHA, the group that represents hospitals. American Medical Association yeah. and American Hospital Association. <laughs> Amateur hour here. Uh, you, these big kind of health care groups, you just expect them to say, no, we don't want any change. You know, we get the highest prices in the world. Like, why would we do anything. You know, Ezra, I'm curious how you think about this, but at least when I look at Obamacare, it generally looks like a pretty good deal for big healthcare interests because they are 
getting more customers. They're getting before the ACA, you had millions of uninsured people who would just go to the hospital and wouldn't pay their bill. And you'd have all this debt that hospitals would rack up. And, and you've seen since Obamacare took effect, less of these unpaid bills. And the things that the big healthcare interests didn't like were basically taxes on their industry. So the mm-hmm. hospital industry got a tax, device makers, drug makers, insurers. And slowly those taxes are kind of getting like pulled apart. We've seen a delay on the Cadillac tax, a delay on the health insurance plan tax, a delay or a pause on the medical device tax, which is really bizarre. But it does kind of look like to me the type of bill you'd come up with in a world where these big healthcare interests are dominating the debate. And one thing that, you know, interests me about what Sanders is saying is kind of the intersection it has with his policy agenda, particularly in the healthcare space. You know, Sanders has talked a lot and, you know, we've talked about it here on the podcast, a single payer plan, Medicare for all. And really, you know, the big obstacles you would face are exactly the ones that Sanders is talking about, just this really big pushback from a massive industry that would near certainly rally against that type of system. So watching Obamacare closely actually changed my views on money and politics pretty dramatically. And one of the things that I came out of that debate thinking that I hadn't thought when I went in, I think when I went in, I went in with a view that was actually a lot more like Sanders. I think that in many ways, the narrative of what happened when the Clinton administration tried to pass healthcare in 1994, the sort of superficial narrative of it, which which I actually don't believe after I did some long pieces on it, but was it, well, the insurance industry mobilized in the pharmaceutical industry and they had these Harry and Louise ads. And, and I don't think that's really in the end what happened. But... What I came to believe through Obamacare was that American politics is kind of like, and, and bear with me on this analogy for a minute, um, physics, where there are different rules for things that are very big and very small, right? So physics has you know quantum mechanics on the small level and relativity on the large level. And I think in American politics, money is very, very, very powerful on smaller questions and much less powerful on bigger questions. And what I mean by that is that when you look at how Obamacare was crafted, when you look at how the insurance credits are done, when you look at whether we negotiate drug prices or not, you can really see the influence of money very clearly, right? The Obama administration cut a lot of deals with big moneyed interests in order to make that bill friendlier to them. And in the end, they ended up getting the support or the neutrality of many of the major healthcare interests, right? The insurers, if I remember correctly, were neutral. Pharma was pro. Hospitals were pro. And I think that if you just taken an interest group, you know, look at it, like once they had done that, once they had won over all of these major players in the healthcare industry, then you would have said with this kind of money and politics frame, okay, like this bill is going to pass pretty easily. This is what Clinton was not able to do. Obama was able to do it. They're going to get all these Republican votes. Of course, they got zero Republican votes, not a single one. And I don't think you would have predicted that if you thought that what was going on, as I think many people do, is that, oh, Republicans are just doing the bidding of the insurers. That's clearly not what they were doing. The insurers did not think no Republican should vote for the bill, if only because more Republicans voting for it would have given insurers more of a voice in, in how it was crafted. So I think that on this small level, money is very powerful. It's very powerful in how the bill is drafted. But then there's this large level of does Obamacare pass or something like Obamacare? Does a major infrastructure bill pass? Does a cap and trade bill pass? And I think this is actually more of what Bernie Sanders is talking about on some level, right? Is there action on what people want? Like, there's no doubt that Obamacare is 
completely a compromise with special interests. But Bernie Sanders believes Obamacare was a step forward, right? He says he helped write it to some degree. He believes it was progress. You know, he doesn't want to see it repealed. He voted for it. So in that way, money was not what almost killed that bill, right? Money in some ways helped it move forward. Now, there were interests that were opposed, Chamber of Commerce and others, but what killed that bill was ideology, was partisanship. And, and here's the thing that I think is really different Didn't about kill that bill, though. what almost it killed that bill. I'm sorry, you completely, of course, yes. We do have Obamacare to <laughs> right. not die. What I think is really interesting about this is that when it comes down to it, money is it's not always a good force in American politics, but it is a negotiating force in American politics, right? Money has interests. They want certain things and they don't want others. And those interests can be reasoned with and you can end up with sort of positive sum outcomes, right? Both Obama and Sanders and the pharmaceutical industry thought Obamacare was better than the pre-Obamacare status quo. What is not true like that is partisanship. In the end, only one party can win an election. Either the Democrats win or the Republicans win. And so whereas money can be kind of you can you can have a deal and around the table, you know, everybody kind of walks away feeling like, okay, they gave up something, but they got more. I think the thing that is really hard for getting what Sanders wants done done is actually this question of partisanship, because the Republican Party rightly understood that if 25 Senate Republicans and 100 Republican House members voted for Obamacare, then Barack Obama would go campaigning around the country saying, look, I passed this great bill. I compromised. I brought red and blue together. You should give me you should give me another term. This is really great legislation. And he would have won a bunch of more seats and put a bunch of Republicans out of jobs. And and so I think that on that big level, the thing that Sanders is really underplaying here, I think that a lot of people underplay is how much political gridlock and disagreement is driven by the fundamental zero-sum nature of the American political system. Policy can be very positive some, but, but in the end, policy questions resolve down to questions of who do you think should win the next election? That is ultimately what Mitch McConnell worries about, ultimately what Harry Reid worries about. And when you get down to that, you actually can't come to a compromise. And so I think that is a much harder to solve problem, actually, than the money problem. This discussion suffers from a sort of conflation of money and interest groups. It is true that one way That's that a really good point. one way that interest groups exercise influence is by donating money to campaigns or by doing independent expenditures. So money matters to interest groups. But interest groups matter in ways beyond money, right? So for example, one reason that labor unions, probably the primary reason that, that labor unions are politically influential, is that they have members. I mean, one thing they do is they collect dues from those members and they use that money to make contributions. But they also provide human beings. They attend rallies. They make telephone calls. They go vote. Teachers unions like it when school systems are run by separate school boards from the larger political system. And they really like it when election day for those school boards is scheduled on like weird days that there isn't uh, going to be a high turnout. And that's not because the teachers union is going to swamp the school board election with like billions of dollars. that They don't have that much money. Um, it's because they're going to tell teachers to go vote and because the teachers are going to tell other human beings who they know, hey, I'm a public school teacher. I have a lot of insight into the problems of public education. Here's what you should go do. And so they're powerful in that regard. The American Medical Association, I think, is primarily a powerful interest group because people have confidence in the opinions of doctors right. about health policy things. Like a, a huge challenge to single-payer health care, it seems to me, is that doctors don't like it. Not in the sense that doctors would get together and swamp the single-payer movement with this like unbelievable quantity of money, 
but in the sense that most people who saw medical doctors in person and discussed the proposal with them would hear from a qualified medical professional, this is terrible and is going to destroy our healthcare system. And they would go on television, you know, and, and stuff like that. And, and before Physicians for a National way, Health this Plan... Is, this is not even just theoretical. In past efforts to, to pass single payer, there were organized campaigns from the American Medical Association right. where people or would go even, in to see their doctor I bet and, if get, anyone, and get told this was like the beginning of communism in America. If anyone talks to their doctor about Obamacare, as like I frequently, people ask me what I do, I tell them about health care, you will hear your doctor says, oh, Obama. Like most doctors I've talked to are pretty down on Obamacare. Right. If, like, if, if every doctor yes. in America was telling everyone they ever spoke about politics to that this was the greatest thing that ever happened, I think that would give a big lift to it, right? right. But but you hear the opposite. Same thing. Uh, no Child Left Behind, it turned out most teachers did not like the way that, that this bill was changing how they had to do their job. And you can think they were right and you can think they were wrong, but the fact of the matter is people heard in meetings with teachers that you know, you know, uh, conferences, the things they do were just casual social conversations, <laughs> right? Teachers were going around for 10 years trashing this law. And that really changes public opinion. And so when you have organizations that have trusted members, uh, and then the, the converse thing, right, is if you talk about... Right, like the a, American Association of Lobbyists is not like considered an exactly. important, you know. But, then, but it does exist. But, which I'm, is, not, I'm not 100% sure if it does exist. There is an association like does, of yeah. associations, my favorite association in DC. But, but, but then you have a, a, a different... A different Different mechanisms of influence, right? So, like oil companies, uh, oil companies are not well regarded by the public. Uh, having an Exxon executive get up and be like, "Oh, this cap and trade bill sucks," like <laughs> that doesn't move the needle. Um, but the fact of the matter is. Whether you like it or not, a lot of people work for oil companies. Mary Landrieu was representing Louisiana in the United States Senate. And it's just a true fact that a big industry in Louisiana is oil and gas extraction. And she, as a responsible guardian of her constituents' interests, is going to take that into account. Now, one thing that will happen is that because she is an ally of the oil and gas industry, they will put money into her campaign coffers so that she can be effective. And a lot of people will do this. They, they will reverse engineer it. And they'll be like, aha, Landrieu's shilling for oil and gas because she's getting all this money from them. But that's wrong. If she wanted to be the crazy Louisiana politician who tries to put her home state's major business out of work, the Sierra Club would get her some money to replace that cash because it would be such an unusual ally for them. Members represent generally the interests of their home state and their home district's major industries because they have employees who work there and, and because it matters. So then you can have something else, right? So like the Koch brothers have put a lot of money into the political system. I mean, really, by the standards of past decades, it would be completely unprecedented to be spending this kind of money. And liberals sometimes make this out to be, oh, the Kochs, they're involved in the oil industry, so they're putting all this money to defeat right. environmental laws. It is true that the Kochs stand to personally benefit from the specific environmental advocacy campaigns they do, but they are running a much broader kind of thing like that. And I think if you if you ever read interviews with them, it's clear that they're lunatics. They they have a <laughs> um, 
their father was much crazier. And they have, over the decades of sort of rich guy quasi-isolation from reality, have managed to hit upon a much less crazy form of right-wing politics than their dads. But they're really committed, sincere, hardcore libertarians. And one of the things that their money has done is erode the impact of interest group money. So there was a, a good article in The Times about how Boeing builds a lot of uh, planes or maybe just the engines for the planes in South Carolina. And so Lindsey Graham wanted to make this like a big issue in the South Carolina primary, that he was for the Export-Import Bank, which was really important to the South Carolina economy. And he was counting on that playing in his home state primary. And just nobody cared, right? And in part, that's because of this money. The Kochs and others have spent a lot of money on trying to make conservative politics more ideologically rigorous. And, and less interest group driven. So, you know, that it's a case where money, I think, has mattered in reshaping the Republican Party, but the way it has mattered is in making it less attuned to interest group concerns. There's a lot of money in American politics, so interest groups spend money, but interest groups are important in the politics of pretty much any country that you look at because it's just inherently the case. If your organization has a lot of members, people are going to care what they think. Yeah. One thing I think that you get at well there, which is a big part of how you need to analyze this is that there's money that polarizes the system and money that brings it together, right? There's money that wants to get nothing done and money that wants to get things done very badly. A good example of this is the debt ceiling crisis in 2011. Basically, all money in terms of special interest group money, right, all money that represented businesses, that represented workers, did not want a debt ceiling crisis to happen because it would have been terrible for the economy. But you also have ideological money. And, and something that I think is a fascinating sub-theme of this is that liberals and conservatives alike really like to think about small donors. And you, you'll hear this term, small donor democracy, right, that maybe the correct evolution for the system is not towards public financing of elections, but towards some model that really magnifies the donations of small donors. So right, you'll, you'll hear about ideas that if you're donating less than $250, your donations will be matched five to one or something. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that there is this kind of peer money, which comes from a small donor, right, a family in Iowa somewhere who's gotten really inspired by Ted Cruz and is giving him and is donating to his campaign. And then there is this kind of impure money, which is coming from ExxonMobil. And what I think is interesting there is that small donor money is in many ways more polarizing than some of the kind of big corporate interest money. The Chamber of Commerce wants to get things done in terms of whether or not Congress actually legislates on things like No Child Left Behind, on immigration, on all kinds of different things. Chamber of Commerce money is much less obstructionist than small donor money because small donor money, the people who get involved in politics at the level where they really want to begin donating to people, right? Because that's, that's pretty far to go down the line of political involvement to give your money away so somebody can get elected, they're doing it usually because they hate and fear the other party and because they are very, very, very inspired by a very pure vision coming from their party. They're not doing it because they want something. They're not being transactional about it. And I'm not putting a, a value judgment on this. I, I think in many ways that kind of money is less corrupting in some kind of broad way. But 
that kind of less corrupting nature comes at the cost of it being more more ideological. But and I, just, I would encourage on that view, you know, people who are enthusiastic about this idea to look at Arizona state right. politics, which has some of the most robust, clean, uh, sort of clean elections laws and, and small donor matching. And it's fine to say you like what has happened in Arizona, but particularly progressively minded people who think that this is going to solve all of the problems that they have with the political system should take note of the Arizona Republican Party and ask themselves whether they think this is the model of post-money politics. Because what it is, is it's it's just, it continues to be very right-wing because people in Arizona are conservative, but it hues very rigorously to conservative ideology because it is untainted by the Arizona Chamber of Commerce didn't want to do really over-the-top anti-immigrant bills because they thought it was going to give Arizona a bad reputation nationally and hurt tourism and blah, 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 blah. But the Arizona Republican Party is in the legislature. They were able to shrug that off because they are not dependent. Well, can you donors. back up and walk through what Arizona does? Oh, sure. I, they do. I don't know this specific threshold, but it, it, it's something along these lines. It's if you are willing to abide by some spending cap, money that you raise from small donors is matched, I think, two to one by public funds. And so what you need to do is you need to go out and get a lot of people who are very engaged with politics, who care enough about politics to write you a check, to give you some money, and then you get like a bigger check from the government. So you can afford to care less about transactional people who really want something for your money. But you need to get people who are enthusiastic. So you end up with the idea is you end up with more polarized funding. Yeah. It just it's it's very ideological funding. It's not about getting deals done. And an important other thing to note is that even small donations you don't get from poor people. If you sit around and you know that you have to wonder some months if you're going to be able to get diapers for your kid or if you're going to be able to pay the heating bill, you're not going to write even a $50 check. And something I want to note about Arizona, and I'm just, if you if you want to learn more about this, Andrew Prokop, who works at Vox, a, a fantastic website on the interweb, you can search his name, Andrew Prokop, Vox in, in Arizona, and you'll find a great interview he did with Michael Miller, who's a political scientist who studies the Arizona law. And something I think is important to note about this is that the Arizona actually did what it was intended to do. Among other things, and, and this is an important thing about campaign finance proposals, politicians in Arizona now spend more time than they did before with voters, right? right? Which is, you know, I think by any measure, something we really want. But one thing about spending more time with the people who come out when you want to spend time with voters and less time calling local business leaders and trying to get them to give you money is that you spend more time with people who are very liberal or very conservative and less time with someone who just wants like the port, not the port in Arizona, but you know what I mean, the, you know, the local roads built. They want the sand, something with right. the sand, right? <laughs> I was thinking about the Lindsey Graham analogy earlier where there is a big port issue. And, and I, I think that matters. But something that is embedded in, in what you're talking about, Matt, which is also an interesting question of, of money is not just how powerful money coming into politics is, but how powerful money going out from politics is. Something that I've always found really interesting is the way in which the way we've created American politics is that politicians are supposed to represent their state or their district, right, uh, in Congress at least. That is increasingly less salient than it used to be. Politicians primarily represent their party. That if you if you tell me a politician is a Republican and you or you tell me they're from Iowa, I can predict their voting record with much more accuracy by knowing their party affiliation than by knowing 
where they're from. And I, back during the, the sort of aftermath of the Great Recession, I went and did an analysis where I looked at there were these continuous votes on extending unemployment insurance, right? Because unemployment insurance kept expiring. And so politicians would, Congress would have to go back and say, okay, are we going to have these sort of expanded unemployment benefits for longer? And what I did was I went and I cut the states by which ones had an unemployment level higher than the national median and which states had an unemployment lower than the national average. And what was interesting about it was when you cut states and, and senators by that measure, you would expect to see senators hailing from states with a higher than average unemployment level would be voting for expanded unemployment benefits because, one, their constituents needed it more, but two, it was a better deal for their state. They were getting basically subsidized by lower unemployment states in order to have more generous benefits. There was almost no relationship based on that. It didn't matter, really, whether your state had a high unemployment level. What really mattered was which party you were from. Another great example of this is Medicaid expansion, where you have, right. you know, if you looked at states with high uninsured rates, California and Texas are the two highest, and generally the South is really high uninsured rates. You'd expect the way Medicaid expansion works, the federal government's covering um, it's either 100 percent or like 95 percent of the bill right now. I forget where it's at. But it's such a good deal for states that have really high uninsured rates. But you actually see the opposite. It's not that there's no correlation, but that Republican governors, and I think actually I haven't run the numbers, but you'd actually see that states with higher uninsured rates have more Republican governors and have less high odds of taking that Although money. Although Medicaid expansion, I think, is a great example of this sort of multi-layered onion of how money matters in politics. Because on one level, you would think, oh, okay, well, the money is going to be coming from hospitals, right? Mm -hmm. Hospitals are going to really want you to expand Medicaid because they, it's just like free money for health insurance providers, right? And huge amounts of free money. I mean, the Medicaid yeah. expansion is a really big deal. And, and just real quick, the, the Medicaid expansion, I think still the government pays 100% of it, but it's mm -hmm. going down to 90% in a year or two. Yeah. And that's compared to normal Medicaid, where the government on average pays about 57% mm -hmm. of the expansion. So it is the federal government backing a dump truck of money into right. your state. And, and you do see, as, yeah. as predicted, the hospitals and, and related industries do spend money on this. They do lobby for it. And unlike many other liberal things... Some Republican governors have embraced this, mm -hmm. and some Republican state legislators have gone along with them. But then on the other hand, you see something that I don't think the Obama administration really expected when they started crafting this policy, which was that conservative groups, Koch and, and aligned people, real ideological people, have actually spent a lot of money on fighting Medicaid expansion, right? So part of the calculation initially was, on the one hand, there's going to be money for doing the expansion. On the other hand, sure, cranky right-wingers won't want to do it, but no one's actually going to be lobbying against it because it's not in anyone's concrete interest to not expand Medicaid, right? There's no, no one has skin in that game. But one of the things you've seen with the explosion of not like middle ground big money, but like really, really huge billionaire money is people, I mean, and George Soros does this on the left. I don't want to only talk about, about the Cokes, but people who have just firm ideological commitments putting money behind ideas that 10, 20 years ago, there just wouldn't have been any money behind, right? Just like take a stand on principle 
against expanding the welfare state was not a thing that you could have field organizers working to do. But now it is through Americans for Prosperity. If you scaled the money down to the hospital level, it would be for Medicaid expansion. Where it is now, there's money against it. But if you cut it all the way down to the just the small donors, it gets ideological again. Right. right? So it's like that transactional money in the middle distance was incredibly powerful from what I've read in the 80s. That that was like an era of campaign finance when being able to put together a big bundle of $1,000 checks was like incredibly important in American politics. Now we've shifted to a level where a single very wealthy individual can just cut like an enormous check. And they tend to do that for passion. It's too much money to do out of self-interest. Well, I mean, one thing that's interesting is it really seems to vary state for state, like whether this works or not. You look at a state like Ohio, where the hospitals like really rallied and they like got together and they lobbied Kasich and he got behind it. And then you look at Texas, where like the Texas hospitals have been lobbying night and day and just cannot get like a foot on the ground. Right. Or some states where I forget which states have flipped over to Medicaid expansion. God, this is this is bad for my wonk credentials. But you know, you have some states that are Ohio. actually Ohio not this year. I was thinking of oh, in twenty fifteen. Yeah, yeah, the new ones. Who signed on? I don't remember that. So You've written some good articles. I've written some articles. I've edited them and I don't remember that either. Shameful. But um it, it's interesting, like you see and this is getting a little bit further away from Congress, but like state by state, that interplay isn't always the same. That and it, and it can get really funny, right? Like Florida has a very right-wing governor yeah. who ultimately ended up trying to accept the Medicaid expansion. But yes. it has an even more right-wing state legislature mm-hmm. that blocked him from doing it, yeah. right? I mean, like – and there was a place where the governor is a little bit more accountable to broad interests across Florida and more worried about, you know, overall tourism and things. And the state legislature is really like purely kind of conservative activists running on the local level and getting elected in these very low turnout elections. And and they just blocked them Mm -hmm. to bring this kind of full circle. A very easy way of of showing what is going on here is actually looking at at the presidential campaign. So we we began this with Bernie Sanders and, and maybe I'll end it with him. Small donor democracy looks like Bernie Sanders versus Ted Cruz. Right. And, and and big money looks like Hillary Clinton versus Jeb Bush. Right. And I think there are many reasons to prefer either one of those to the other. I think you can argue it both ways. I think a, I think a lot of liberals hear Ted Cruz and hate that and a lot of Republicans hear Bernie Sanders and, and hate that. But a place where you're talking about exciting small donors, where you're not looking at the big money, you're not looking at the special interests, or at least not the transactional ones is a place where you get the most liberal member of the Senate running against pretty much the most conservative. And in a political system that relies on cross-party agreement to get things done over the long run, it's very hard to control every level of government simultaneously. That is a political system where things are going to be very gridlocked. Conversely, the the sort of Hillary Clinton, Jeb Bush version of this, because Jeb Bush, as badly as he's done in the primary, raised a fuck ton of money, I believe is the technical term for yes. it. I mean, he had, a, he had $100 million basically before the race even began. And that is a much more transactional space. Those are people who will make a deal. But, you know, those deals are going to be heavily influenced by special interests. The special interests who fund those people really are going to have a seat at the table. So more is going to get done. But what gets done is it going to have voices in there that, you know, a lot of people aren't comfortable with or at least aren't comfortable with being in the room at that volume. And so, you know, which of these systems you prefer, I think, will depend on your kind of personal 
ideas about what American politics should be and what it should represent and what kind of weight you place on transactional politics versus kind of principle-based politics. But but I think you can see it. And I think that it speaks to what Sanders was saying earlier. I don't think a Congress made up of Bernie Sanders's and Ted Cruz's would be better at getting things done than the current Congress. In fact, I think that the reason Congress is getting so much worse at getting things done is it's trending in that direction. Whereas, you know, I think a Jeb Bush, Hillary Clinton based American politics feels a little bit transactional and grubby to people in a way that makes them lose faith in, in the system a little bit. Obviously, we're, the, the choice isn't quite that stark, but I think that is a fundamental choice. And with that, let's uh, raise some of our own money with, <laughs> with a, a little sponsor break and then uh, move on to poisoned water. <laughs> So we're really excited to have as a sponsor this week Ballotcraft. It's a fantasy politics game. It's like fantasy football, but for politics. You win in Ballotcraft by best predicting who's going to win the Iowa caucuses, who's going to win the New Hampshire primaries, and other upcoming elections. You play with friends or against other political junkies on the site. As of this recording, Ballotcraft players are giving Hillary Clinton a 60% chance of winning the Democratic caucus in Iowa, and Ted Cruz a 68% chance of winning the Republican caucus in Iowa. Maybe you think you know better. Sign up for Ballotcraft and prove it. It's 100% free. Check it out at BallotCraft.com. One story we've been covering a lot over the past few weeks at Vox is um, lead poisoning in Flint, Michigan, which is just a very sad, tragic story, but unfortunately something that's actually pretty common in the United States, something Matt um, has been writing about lately, about how we have this relatively kind of surprising high levels of lead in urban areas. If you haven't been following the news, what's been happening in Flint is essentially a crisis around lead poisoning, where after switching water sources, the city has had really high levels of lead poisoning in their children. People in the city are reporting all sorts of terrible symptoms, rashes, hair falling out. And it's really a crisis situation there that we've been writing about and one that kind of happened under economic duress as Flint switched water sources. But we wanted to talk to Matt because it's an issue he's been interested in, and not just Flint, but a lot of cities in the United States here in D.C., New York, New Orleans is another place that's looked at it. They have surprisingly high levels of lead contamination, right? Yeah, there's a, a multifaceted issue here because basically... Can, can, before we get into the issue, can we just back up to why lead is specifically important? Yeah. Because I, it's not like mm-hmm. other kinds of poisoning you might have in water, right? The problem here is not just that it, it makes people sick. It's that it has really long-lasting cognitive issues on, on children who get poisoned. Do you want to walk through that a little bit? Right. I mean, what what happens is is that lead used to be used in all kinds of sort of applications. It was a gasoline additive. It was used in a, in a lot of pipe work. It was an additive in a lot of paint yeah. that was in houses and on toys. It's a sort of, it's a useful material. But it turns out that Ingesting like a lot of lead will lead to sort of obvious symptoms like the hair falling out, people, you know, feeling ill, stuff like that. But we've learned from studying it over the years that smaller levels of lead that do not make a person obviously sick have an influence on brain development, especially of children and also uh, for pregnant women, for the fetuses in there. And a, a sort of alarming thing that researchers have found is that it's hard to study really, really, really small levels of blood lead contamination because it's it's hard to measure the well, smaller Well, also, you, be, you can't create a randomized trial where you start. <laughs> giving some kids a right. from an early age. But the more granular 
the medical researchers are able to get with this, the more they are finding that there is no safe level of lead in the blood, that the CDC used to have a standard that 25 micrograms per deciliter was like the lead poisoning standard. Then they cut it to 10. Then they cut it to five. Now they say five is the like press the alarm button guideline, but that there is no safe level of lead. And they show that, you know, there's a, a decline in IQ associated with lead exposure. They showed that even at tiny levels, right, that if you look at the amount of lead that the average child has, and if you even look at slightly below average levels, that more lead leads to more attention deficit disorder diagnoses, right? So it seems that any any amount of lead that is getting into the, the sort of bloodstream of kids produces problems with sort of higher cognitive functions. Now, to be clear, What's happening in Flint is very, very extreme case. It is much, much worse. Your kids at home are not being exposed to lead on those kind of levels. You we will hope. not see those kinds of dramatic impacts. But it is striking to me that at the typical level for American children, there is an appreciable amount of harm that is being done. And it used to be much, much worse. Uh, uh, lead in gasoline was phased out in the mid-70s. But if you were a kid in the sort of middle of the 20th century, uh, in the 50s and 60s, this whole sort of baby boomer cohort had just lead floating around in the air everywhere all the time. And it's that's really bad. So they phased that lead out. They don't put lead in new paint anymore. And they don't lay new pipes that have lead in it, but all this old lead is is sitting around. So one problem you have is municipal water systems, right? The good news is water can normally go through a pipe without the metal from the pipe getting into the water. Uh, that's, I don't know, that's how metal works. But every once in a while, you get a problem like you had in, in Flint, which was they wanted to switch in the sort of medium term to this like new consortium of Michigan towns who were going to get water from Lake Huron. And But in the interim, they were switching off of buying water from Detroit, but they weren't yet on the new system. So they were getting water from the Flint River. And this Flint River water was polluted, not polluted with lead, but polluted with other things that made the water corrosive to metal. And so that meant that when the water flowed through old pipes into people's houses, it was leaching lead out of the pipes and, and into the water. And the U.S. EPA took note of this problem and seems to have tried to tell the Michigan State Agency several times, hey, you, you have to put anti-corrosive agents into this water before you can pipe it to people. And they just didn't do it. And it's not 100% clear why it is they didn't do it. But, like, the basic problem— Can I add a real quick yeah. just note in here? Something to know that's an important part of the political economy of this story is that Flint, Michigan, had been put under um, emergency management because of its financial straits. So the decisions here were not being made by local government officials in the way they normally would. They were being made by state-appointed emergency managers who ultimately reported up to the governor. the governor. And there's a lot of complicated arguments about whether or not that mattered, right? We don't know the counterfactual of whether the local officials would have done differently. And often local officials, in ways that didn't ultimately matter that much, but, but were still there, signed off on these decisions. But it is just a, an interesting kind of wrinkle of this, that the incentives of 
governance in Flint were very different at this moment than they are in most places at most times. Right. Although I should say, uh, you know, people want to debate the emergency manager law because it's interesting and sort of important. But whether Flint had been under an emergency manager or not, the state public health department and the state environmental protection department. Absolutely. When you, when you get yeah. a note from the EPA that's like, yo, <laughs> this city isn't treating its water properly. You have to tell, make them do it. You're supposed to do something. And they didn't <laughs> do anything. And so an interesting question is why did didn't they do it? Why didn't they do anything? And, you know, you can sort of bore down into the, the kind of weeds of it. But I think the sort of big picture issue is that the the state government in Michigan was just like not that interested in what was happening to like poor African-Americans in Flint, right? That they were not being very responsive to the needs of the citizens. People were complaining on a casual, like non-scientific basis, like, yo, there's something there's something wrong with the water. People could tell because it was really, really bad. And sometimes the water was coming out orangish or pinkish. I mean, things had gotten really weird. There right. At a it, it, was, point. It, it was really messed up. We have um, a good piece um, at, at Vox today uh, and we'll Put it in. We'll put it in show notes by someone who lived in, in Flint. And, and he's talking a lot about this question of the emergency manager laws and, and kind of what happened. But he also talks a lot about how it felt. And it, it's a really fascinating testimony because he really relays anecdotally what it was like back then. He talks about friends of his that showered at the gym and like their ears bled because the water was so like heavy and filled with particulate. Like it's a really I think that from the outside, you kind of assume like, OK, like it's kind of an invisible pollutant. But but things had gotten to a point that you cannot imagine happening in a city where the residents had more political power. Right. But here is what where I do want to say that, I mean, this Flint situation is so extreme that it's, I mean, it's really outrageous. And you have even the governor apologizing now. But it is worth keeping in mind that, you know, look, if you turn on the tap of your water and something orange comes out, like, don't, don't drink it. If you can possibly afford to go get some bottled water, go do that. Reasonably middle class or even wealthy, depending on where you live, people who are fully politically empowered are in fact being impacted by a much more insidious and invisible sorts of forms of pollutants. And it is not being studied that well. The, the leading sort of researcher on lead happens to work at Tulane. So he can draw you and has drawn these like very detailed maps of lead concentrations in New Orleans. And as it happens, like central New Orleans is a low income and African-American kind of place. Um, and so that's where the problem is. And in the suburbs where there were less old cars driving around, there's less lead. And so there, there is a very sort of firm class and racial dynamic to particularly how Midwestern populations are distributed. There was some concern about, well, is there heavy metal toxins in sort of faddish, yuppie community gardens in Brooklyn? So they started studying community gardens in Brooklyn. And it turns out that, yep, there's tons of toxic heavy metal in basically all of these community gardens in, in Brooklyn. You can you can see on my, my article about this. And in most cases, for adults to eat the vegetables that come out of these gardens is not a problem because it's not the way vegetables work and it's not the way lead works. Um, but the, there's a problem for kids, right? And the problem isn't really about eating carrots that were grown in lead-infested soils. It's about the fact that they only happen to test community gardens, but that would be like a really odd coincidence. Presumably, there's just lead in all the soil in Brooklyn. Because lots of people drove cars and there were factories operating there all throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. That stuff, it comes in the air, it falls back down to the sky, and it just mixes in with the dirt. And so then dogs walk around and they track dirt back into people's houses. Kids play in the park and they 
put their hands in things and they put their hands in their mouths. And this kind of soil dynamic is impacting lots of people. And even one of the subplots of the Flint thing is when the officials and public health officials in Flint first started noticing elevated levels of, of lead in kids' bloods. They wrote it off by saying, well, it's just the normal seasonal fluctuation. But what the normal seasonal fluctuation is, is that when weather is warmer, children spend more time outside. And that means they are ingesting more toxic lead, right? So that's what's considered normal. What was happening in Flint was abnormal. But the normal thing is also bad. And I want to go back to a point you're making about how bad the data is on this. So one thing, if you go to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control website, you'll see they have a website to track lead levels. And and it seems like actually pretty thorough. You can look at it on a county-by-county basis. Then you realize actually states aren't even required to report this. I think it's like 30 states choose to report this, and the other 20 just like don't send this information in. Let's look at like the county I grew up, like King County in Washington State. Washington State just decides not to report this information. Then you go into like the actual files and you see like, well, data's missing for this year and that year. That even if you wanted, if I want to know, did I grow up in an area with a lot of lead? That information is very difficult to find out right now. And it's like, you know, Matt had this good post that had these like specific maps of like New York and um, I think DC and New Orleans. But those are kind of, you know, not the not the standard that it's very difficult to know right now if there's not toxic water coming out of your tap, like what is actually happening where you live. There's also a fascinating, depressing, unhappy kind of long-term issue here. And something worth connecting it back to is that this isn't the first recent story that has in some fundamental way had led as a big part of it. If people remember the death of Freddie Gray in Baltimore, which was a really big story in, in 2015, and this was a young guy and he was arrested by police and then put in a police van and appears to have been unrestricted strained in that van and they handcuffed and, and shackled and they drove the van in such a way that he ended up snapping his spine and dying. And it was a, a really terrible story. But something that was in a terrible part of the backstory was that Freddie Gray had had very, very high levels of lead poisoning as a child. So high, in fact, that his family had been in lawsuits with, I don't remember if it's the developers or, or the city, but it was, but, but, but there were lawsuits around the amount of lead that that family was exposed to. And one thing that high levels of early lead exposure will do, as Matt said, is lead to reduced IQ, high levels of attention deficit disorder, less kind of executive function in controlling your behavior. And so will lead to kids for in all kinds of ways having a much harder time doing well in school, staying out of trouble, particularly in their teenage years. I mean, there, there, have been, there are arguments about this data, but there's a lot of correlational data connecting lead to crime rates. And, you know, there's, there's more recent studies casting doubt on some of it, but there seems to be something there. And one thing we do in American life that I think is a, a very tough thing, and you see it whenever we have these kinds of debates about a young kid who ends up in some kind of, you know, really terrible police altercation is we get into this conversation about angels versus not angels, right? Like the kind of Michael Brown, he was no angel line in, in, in the New York Times or with Freddie Gray, he's a kid who'd been in trouble with the police a number of times. We have this sort of really deep sympathy for the child who is at a crappy urban school and does really well at that school, right, and stays out of trouble, but still doesn't have, you know, great outcomes in life. We really feel that, right? That's somebody who did their job in the American meritocracy and then didn't get where, where we should have put them. And we worry about that kind of social mobility. We worry about it a lot. It's something Republicans talk a lot about, Democrats talk a lot about. But 
will also allow things to happen in American life, like kids get exposed to lead a lot when they're young. And then when they are in high school, they don't get good grades and they don't stay out of trouble. And then we kind of are, are more willing to write them off or more willing to say, OK, well, these kids did not do their job in the meritocracy. They're kind of getting, you know, if not what's coming to them, they're at least not where our real concern should be oriented. But oftentimes the ability to work hard, the ability to be disciplined, the ability to kind of latch on to what your teachers are telling you and, and sort of understand it quickly so that you can kind of get those positive feedback loops in school, those are – traits that are driven by all kinds of natural and genetic and environmental factors. And one thing that we often don't do, particularly for poor children, is they have much, much, much worse sort of ecosystems that they grow up in, right? For, for all kinds of reasons. There's more crime, there's more environmental toxins, there's less safety, there, there's less regularity, they're not spoken to as much. And then we are very, very comfortable completely blaming them for their outcomes in life. And, and we kind of comfort ourselves, particularly those of us who grew up in, in more stable circumstances, that our success is merited and, and their failures are also merited, that we worked hard and, and they didn't. But I do think one part of the lead story, and particularly the lead story from urban inner cities, is that it is a contributor to long-term inequality and, and lack of mobility in America. But it's a contributor in a way that even though we know it, we don't like to think about it very much because there's not a lot we can do about it on, on the back end, right? We can do something about it to do lead abatement now, but we can't, we can't go back. And it really is in sharp tension. It is a kind of thing that I think should really make us question ways in which America is and is not a meritocracy and the ways in which we are and aren't comfortable blaming people for their ultimate outcomes in life because it really does have these effects that are deeply insidious and that end up coming out in things that you know we tend to judge in isolation but are actually the product of academic achievement or staying out of trouble that we tend to judge in isolation but are, are heavily affected by things like childhood environment that were not anything under that kid's control. Well, and I, I also think we have a tendency in the United States to individualize everything. So like one thing that happened when uh, when my wife was pregnant was, of course, we read pregnancy advice. And so one of the things you, you get in pregnancy advice, Emily Oster has, I think, the, the best book about this called Expecting Better. But she has this like two by two grid of fish because it's good to eat fish that are high in omega-3 fatty acids, but it's bad to eat fish who are high in mercury content that will poison your unborn child. And so there's this like grid to show you like which kinds of fish are full of toxic heavy metal. And so that's fine. But like maybe there shouldn't be all this mercury in fish. I mean, it's not a naturally occurring property of fish that they'd be, that they'd be full of mercury. It's a, it's a byproduct of burning coal in power plants. And so the, the Obama administration's clean power plant rule, which is designed to uh, reduce carbon dioxide emissions, has as a side consequence a sharp reduction in mercury emissions. So when they do the cost-benefit analysis, they count those as benefits uh, when they sort of pass it through the regulatory system. And I read this article in The Economist that was like attacking the Obama administration for disingenuously citing all kinds of uh, co-benefits, it's called, in their uh, climate change rules. And I mean, on the one hand, it's true. There is something a little disingenuous 
nervous about it. I mean, we know they're adopting these rules to meet climate change targets. Uh, on the other hand, what they were accused of disingenuously doing is reducing the amount of toxic metal that's in fish that's poisoning children's brains. So I'm not like and not. And just to be clear, they were really doing that. Yeah, no, right? no, no. It, it the, really the disingenuous happened. part is that they're using it to sell a policy yeah. that is not yeah. primarily about. Right. Weird so, so I think this kind of <laughs> mentality that like, well, okay, so fish full of mercury are perfectly safe for adults. Um, so what we ought to do is just kind of really encourage pregnant women to become experts in the fish food chain so they really know which fish are poisonous and which aren't. That's kind of crazy, right? And so, uh, like, D.C. Health Department has its, like, official advice for parents is that if you have a backyard, which many people do in D.C., you should completely cover it up so that there's no exposed soil. <laughs> Which, okay. Um, and so they did actually go through the effort. If you go to, like, kids' playgrounds in D.C., they are covered up with impermeable uh, services so, so the kids don't play in dirt. But, like, they're not doing anything. Like, I am very happy that we do not have a backyard. It's completely sealed with concrete, which is, like, good for us. But not everybody does that. It's a, It's like a public issue. And then there's National Park Service runs all kinds of parks all throughout town, like Logan Circle, right by my house. And I am... Um, I asked the the D.C. Health Department. They have this whole, like, lead Q&A thing. The city does good work on this. And I was like, well, do you guys know anything about uh, the soil in the in the National Park Service parks? And they said, no, they don't do any testing. So <laughs> I guess don't let your kids play in parks is the <laughs> But advice. you have to know which parks are National Park Service parks. <laughs> right. And it's just all, like, it's uh, this to me is, like, this is, like, why we have a society <laughs> <laughs> is to try to address these kinds of problems so that not everything is this, like, infinite checklist. Um, but it does very much cut against the grain of American culture to think of problems that, in principle, like, it is true that a maximally conscientious parent can always keep their kids out of the dirt. But it's just, like, a question of, like, is that really the way we should be living? Or should we be trying to make things, like, easy for people to get by by not having poison in soil everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I come down for not having <laughs> anti-lead. It's a, bold, a strong a hot take. Yeah. Well, but it the is. Question, the question, Matt, I think, is where do you come down on global wealth inequality? I am. After the break. <laughs> You know, like like a lot of you out there, uh, we at The Weeds, we, we love to learn new things. And that's why we're really excited about the new Great Courses Plus video learning service. It gives you unlimited access to the huge library of Great Courses lecture series. Uh, this is a, a lecture series that's gone on for, for a couple years, a couple decades now in a variety of different formats. And they just sort of, they have um, courses that are taught by leading experts in academic fields, you know, philosophy or science, but also practical stuff like cooking. And now they have this new offering, the Great Courses Plus, where you get a kind of all-you-can-eat streaming service. You can browse around. You can dive deep into different things. So Great Courses Plus, it's really cool. I, I like it a lot. And they're giving our listeners an incredible opportunity right now to watch one of their popular courses, Fundamentals of Photography, absolutely free. They think if you check this out, you're going to really love it. You're going to want to sign up. Fundamentals of Photography, it's taught by a professional photographer and National Geographic fellow named Joel Sartore. And it's got really interesting. I mean, like most people these days, I'm taking way more pictures than ever thanks to digital technology. But I don't necessarily think about it that much. And, you know, you look at his first couple lectures and he teaches you things about, you know, about lighting, about framing, about perspective, but really about the idea of seeing like a photographer, you know. 
know, looking at the world with an eye to what makes a kind of picture. And, and it's really interesting. It's, it's changed how I sort of go about my daily life. Um, so here's the offer. For a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream this course, The Fundamentals of Photography, a $235 value, and hundreds of other courses for free. But this free offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds and sign up. I think you're going to really like it. I saw a million different articles this week with one form or another of the headline, 62 billionaires have as much wealth as the bottom 50% of the world's population combined. That is a shocking fact. I can see why a lot of people wrote that headline up. The headline refers to a report that Oxfam does every year, which makes some version or another of this point. Oxfam every year is relying on a report that Credit Suisse does every year, where they publish statistics about wealth and wealth distribution in the world. And so there's this like cycle of virality that, that comes out every year. And it, it always makes me a little sad because it's not false. It is true that if you take the financial assets of the top 62 billionaires in the world and add it up, and then you start accumulating from the bottom forward, you wind up with this factoid, which is very, very striking, which is that 62 billionaires have as much wealth as the bottom 50% of the world's population. But it's based on a very sort of curious way of looking at the world because the problem with using wealth statistics in a in the context of talking about poor people, particularly people on a global scale, is that lots of people, particularly in the developed world, have negative net wealth, uh, sometimes quite significantly. Yeah, can I offer a quick stat here? Yeah. My nephews own more wealth than the bottom 30% of the world combined. Exactly. Some wealthy nephews there. Yeah, but they have no money because they're <laughs> like 10 and 11. <laughs> they're just not in debt. A similar thing is we once at Vox put together a, a chart or a map or something showing the richest members of Congress. And it was super interesting. It was like a good little thing, fun factoids. Um, so then we wanted to make a list of the poorest members of Congress. And we started looking at the data and we realized we couldn't really go forward with it in like a totally good conscious way because the poorest member of Congress Congress is that was, I believe, uh, Elsie Hastings from Florida, who was prosecuted for corruption scandals and ultimately uh, acquitted. But he racked up millions of dollars in legal bills that he simply has not paid. And that I think I think it's pretty clear that the law firms to whom he owes this money are just kind of letting it ride because having a potentially corrupt member of Congress owe you favors is like, not, <laughs> not the worst thing in the world. But anyway, he, he doesn't have the money. He owes these law firms a lot of money. If he won the Powerball, it's true that he would have to hand millions of dollars over to them. But he's he's not just the poorest member of Congress, but by this uh, wealth inequality stat, he's one of the poorest people on the planet, right? He's like much poorer than people who are in homeless shelters. He's poorer than like campesinos working on coffee plantations in right. Nicaragua. But, but when you start to say that, like that's insane, right? Elsie <laughs> Hastings draws a nice salary from the federal government. He has a really good health care plan. He will receive a pension when he retires. It's just that and he's he, got tremendous future earning potential, right? Tremendous... And, and it's really important to say that because that is why he can be so poor. Right. Right. He, you can't you can't get that. He if can cash been in. Dead and unless people but also just be able some of this back. is like a health a generous health insurance plan obviously has value. It just is not counted as an asset. A future pension has monetary value, but it's not counted as an asset. And to your point about earnings potential, right? 
recent graduate of Harvard Law School probably has a very bad net asset position because they have student loans and then they have more student loans. And, and, you know, there is a sense in which a person like that could be uh, considered poor, but they're certainly not among the poorest people on the planet Earth or like poorer than peasant farmers with no access to financial markets. This is just a guy who has racked up a lot of debts, but in advance, he has a very valuable asset, a degree from Harvard Law School. It's just not a marketable asset, right? You can't sell it. So it doesn't count in the Credit Suisse wealth report, but it's a, a, a real thing. So you wind up with a very misleading picture of where deprivation is around the world if you insist on looking at this, this net asset protection. And I think it's particularly odd that, that Oxfam comes out with this because this is like a really good organization that is really concerned with like poverty around the world. And they're trying to make the point that like the material resources exist to alleviate poverty in, in the third world. And that's a great point to make. I mean, the richest people are really rich. But if you did things that organizations like Oxfam favor to alleviate the most severe conditions of poverty in the world, which take place mostly in rural areas and developing countries, you're talking about guys farming rice in, in Cambodia, you would not actually ameliorate this right. like bottom end wealth problem. Right, a version of that Cambodia piece is, is that if you look deep into the data that they're using, you find that China under this data has virtually no one in the bottom 10% of the global wealth distribution because it's very hard in China to go into debt. There's just not a great credit market if you're a poor farmer in the Sichuan area. On the other hand, America has, uh, 7% of Americans are in the poorest inhabitants. And that just clearly, it's clear that the poorest people in America are not poorer than the poorest people in China. Right, if you let, me, let me interrupt this for a minute yeah. because I've spoken, I've, I've written about this paper because it's been coming out for years. I've written about it for a couple of years. I've had this debate with Oxfam and I am in agreement about the ways in which the paper is misleading. It is clearly misleading. On the other hand, it does kind of tell us some important things, which I'm not sure is the way the paper is framed, but, but let me offer kind of the other side of the paper real quick. This is, I think, a good measure not of how poor people are, but of how political power in certain ways is distributed. And, and the way I'd put this is that this issue of the billionaires and, and how much they, they matter Wealth is, to some degree, discretionary income, right? One thing about income is it's very variable year to year. Wealth is a lot less variable. If you have $500,000 or a million dollars in the bank or in the market, you're likely to have some approximation of that next year. Whereas if you made $500,000 this year or even $100,000, you might lose your job next year. I mean, a lot of things can happen to income that doesn't where, – where wealth is a little bit sturdier. So, you know, one version of attack in the Oxfam paper, and, and I've done this, is to say that it is clear that a graduate from Harvard Medical school with $200,000 in, in student loan debt is not poorer than a farmer in India who just doesn't have any debt at all because he can't possibly access a credit marketplace anyway. On the other hand, one thing about that sort of Harvard Medical student is that compared to a billionaire, that Harvard Medical student actually can't spend a bunch of money trying to get their preferences achieved by the political system. They can't go and donate a million dollars to the Ted Cruz super PAC, whereas a billionaire can. And, and I think one thing Oxfam would argue it is trying to point out here is, one, just how much disparity exists. Even if this measure is imperfect, it is interesting. And, you know, I mean, you can cut out the debt levels by sort of cutting out, like, the bottom 10 percent, and you still find that the, the top, you know, billionaires have a lot of the global wealth. But the other thing I think that you find in here 
is a kind of measure that begins to approximate a political power measure. And, and to the point you're making about Oxfam's argument about what should be done, you're completely right that if they got their policy preferences put into law, it wouldn't change the global wealth distribution that much. On the other hand, I think part of their thesis here is that one reason they have a lot of trouble getting their preferences into kind of global law is that so much of the wealth is accumulated among billionaires who don't really worry about this as much. You don't want to spend that money. Now, you can make the counter-counter argument that actually you have a lot of billionaires like Gates, like Zuckerberg, who actually do really care about these issues. And maybe because the money is so concentrated with them, they are willing to give more of it away because it hurts them less. But I, I do just want to make the, the point that there's a very misleading part of the paper, but but the paper is also telling us some interesting things that I have found sometimes myself, like I'll, I will get very into sort of the wonky trashing of the paper and then kind of miss to some degree the, uh, you know, the fact that like, okay, you can cut out the debt and you still find that the billionaires have more than, you know, the bottom 40% of people with, with positive wealth. I, one point this makes to me is just, hopefully I'm phrasing this, how expensive it is to be poor. Like when I think of the Harvard doctor or law school or whoever, there's a flexibility in having right. access to money where if you're someone who's going to Harvard law school or, or if you're someone taking out a loan to start a business, you're in debt, but you're also someone who had the credit to like get into that position. And that's, you know, very different. Like you're saying like, you know, rice farmer in Cambodia or somewhere where it doesn't even have like the access to that credit in a weird way, like the ability to go into debt can sometimes be a signifier of of access to credit in the first place. It, it seems odd to count those people, I guess, like Matt was saying, in that two people in debt can look quite different. You could have someone who's like run up these like credit card bills. They have like really high, um, you know, fees they're paying off each month. You know, they're using payday loaners. They have these like very big um, debts. And then that looks very different from the debt someone's carrying from like a fancy graduate degree. It seems very odd to lump person in debt to payday lenders with person in debt to a graduate school. And right, they signify yeah. like very different statures in and, life. And in the United States, we have a real, I mean, we have an inequality of income and we have an inequality of wealth. But we also do have an inequality of access to credit mm -hmm. in which some people, middle class people and, and wealthy people have access to credit generally on relatively uh, generous terms that be, the government is very involved in the mortgage market. So if you have enough money to make a down payment, you get what's in effect a government-subsidized secured bank loan uh, to sort of increase your housing consumption. Uh, whereas if you don't have enough money to get over that threshold, you're relying on, on unsecured credit from credit card companies or, or even worse, from payday lenders, from pawn shops, and you're in a much worse uh, kind of situation. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, there's an important question there. You know, in terms of what Ezra was saying. Can, can I just, before yeah. we get off this topic, it's also worth noting that even on the private side of the ledger, even not put, not taking into account things like the mortgage interest deduction, the favorable credit terms that are extended to the rich and, and the upper middle mm -hmm. class are often paid for by the unfavorable credit terms extended to, to poor people. So during the, the fight over the Dodd-Frank financial reforms, one thing that happened in those reforms were that a lot of specific, very predatory practices that banks were using on, on credit cards that were taken out by people who were not likely to pay that money back were outlawed, right? There were certain things about what happens if people go into default and how much could you raise the rate and try to get paid back on all their loans simultaneously. There's a lot of shit that happens to people who have you know not a lot of money and a not that great credit card. But what the banks said during that, and this actually did end up happening, 
was that if they weren't allowed to do that anymore, then there would be a lot of perks that had been recently extended to people with better credit, right? Things like free ATM withdrawals, but also all kinds of point, you know, operations mm -hmm. and things, and those would begin to go away. And in a lot of cases, they did. There are places where, you know, free kinds of savings accounts were taken out, and now there's a $10 charge on them every year. It was a very fascinating little moment of insight into the way that market actually worked, which is that one thing that was happening was banks were giving terrible rates and putting really, really terrible terms on poor people and making money off of that. But another thing that was happening was those same banks were using the money they were making off of that, part of that money to extend really favorable rates to, to richer customers. And they were doing that for all kinds of different reasons. One reason was because, you know, those customers are profitable in other ways. But another reason was that it created a certain amount of political economy for what they wanted to have all these rich and upper middle class and, and middle class people who really loved, you know, the, the deal they were getting from their bank. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't have both of those things at the same time, or at least not entirely so. Right. You know, and I, I think in terms of what, what Ezra was saying about sort of looking at wealth at the, at the high end, where I do think it's valuable, because when you're talking about very rich people, it is important to look at their wealth and, and not just their income, because there's a sort of implicit insurance value and power that comes with being that wealthy. One thing that's interesting to look at, even though it's not as comprehensive, is just the inequality in the ownership of shares of stock, because that right. strips out sort of all these debt dynamics, it's challenging at least to get people to loan you money to make stock market investments uh, over the long term. And you do see that it's like 10% of the American population owns over half of the stock. 1% owns, I think it's about a third of it. And, and that's something that, you know, it's important about the distribution of sort of economic clout and financial power, but also in terms of the way we look at the economy, that the ups and downs of the stock market are very... Um, very heavily covered, in part because they're conveniently newsy and like occur on a daily basis. But I've had, you know, a bunch of people talking to me about like, oh, aren't things like going terribly because the stock market's so far down this winter. Um, and there's a very limited universe of people who are primarily bearing the impact of things like that. It's not to say, you know, the stock market doesn't matter or something like that, but it, it's very, 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 very overwhelmingly a question of a relatively small number of rich people. A huge share of the population owns none of that. And, and you know, the, the sort of middle bulk has what to them is like money that matters in this market, but it's not money that matters to the stock market as a whole, which is very much just dominated by, by rich people. Unfortunately, it doesn't lead you to quite as viral a stunning result <laughs> because it, it is true that the, the negative wealth of the bottom 20 percent, which is very misleading, helps you – compile a really compelling statistic because it cancels out the sort of modest, oh, I own a home and I've partially paid off the mortgage right. kind of wealth that a lot of regular people have is canceled out by people who register as like hyper poor but are actually typically just young people in affluent countries. And so I – I, you know, I, God bless you, Oxfam, but like I, I just – I really do think that for an organization that is primarily focused on poverty, it's like it's bad to use a metric that reveals some important facts about the world but mangles the question of who is truly poor. Boom. Another episode of The Weeds. Yeah. yeah there we go. In the books. This has been another exciting episode of The Weeds, a podcast from Vox.com and Panoply. Thanks to my co-host, Sarah Cliff and Matt Iglesias, to AC Valdez, to Dan. Dan, what is your last name? <laughs> 
Dan Bloom, who has an excellent scarf on today that we had a long conversation about during our sound check. You should check it out if you can, but you can't. Um, and we will see you next week. <laughs>